Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of The New Standard. And as always, we're doing this episode with my co-host, Neil Kulong. Neil, how are you doing on this happy Easter Sunday? I'm doing great and happy Easter to all our live listeners out there. I hope that, uh, hope the weather's beautiful, just as it is here in Pittsburgh, wherever it is that you might be. Yes, again, we want to send our our, our, our sincerest uh, you know, congratulations and celebratory stuff to anybody out there that does observe Easter. So, you know, happy Easter Sunday to everybody out there. Before we jump into the program, also want to say the program is available on a zillion different platforms, Apple Pod, Google Podcast, Spotify, and you can reach us on YouTube. The search on YouTube is getting easier to do. So if you go to YouTube, just do a search for the new standard, either with my name, Lance Williams, or with Neil Kulong. When you get there, please, on this Easter Sunday, give us a subscribe. We're doing our best to give you the best content. But before we jump into the show, what's your thought on that epic Gonzaga versus UCLA matchup last night? Yeah, you know, it's crazy. I think this is one we're going to be talking about for uh, for a long time beyond just uh, you know eighteen hours or whatever it is uh, from from when it happened. But um, I'm not a big college basketball guy. I find that uh, football is enough of a mistress in my life. It, it's it, it's hard to really get into other sports and other things. But one thing I do pay attention to is the local guys. I'm from Minneapolis originally. I live in Pittsburgh now. Uh, Jalen Suggs was uh, a, a household name in the Twin Cities area. The local sports scene there. Uh, from when he was a freshman on, he really, and to put it into parlance for uh, Pittsburgh fans, he was our Terrell Pryor. He was very similar uh-huh. in the sense that he was great football and basketball. You weren't sure which way he was going to go, except maybe with Suggs, I think it was maybe a little more uh, toward basketball, um, kind of like Pryor was toward football. But Suggs absolutely could have been a, a Terrell Pryor-like quarterback on the field, very similar, uh, built, lanky, kind of that high hurdler runner type. Uh, but he's just a, a sensational basketball player at, at a very young age. Um, he tore it up. Uh, it, it, it was it was interesting to see him pick Gonzaga of all schools. Uh, people in Minneapolis, when they do well athletically, they tend to go east uh, more than west. I, for whatever reason that happens to be, um, for for him to go to Gonzaga and for Gonzaga to have the, the level of success that they've had with Suggs, I think it's fantastic. And, and last night. Um, you know, if, if you're a fan of the kid more so than the program, you absolutely love it. But what a great game all around it. It, it was uh, it, it was a great thing to watch. And again, it, it's something we're going to be talking about for a long time. It ranks up there with one of the best college basketball games I've seen in the final four. The end was absolutely ridiculous. Uh, full disclosure in my house, sometimes when, um, you know, sometimes I watch TV on YouTube TV. So if you guys know out there, sometimes YouTube TV is late. It lags. So the funny thing about it was um, my son-in-law was watching TV in my den real time. I was lagged about, you know, maybe about 15 seconds. So I hear, <laughs> oh, oh. oh. <laughs> Wait, so, what, 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 what? Something's so, coming. Get ready. You know, something's coming. He runs out like, and then we see it after <laughs> he ran out. And then everybody was screaming in the house. But yeah, you know, I, I think the beauty of that game, was as a Cal grad, it was beautiful to watch UCLA lose. I absolutely hate UCLA. If you are a Cal alum, there is a saying, I won't say it here, or I won't say the whole thing. This this is how we describe our relationship with UCLA. UCLA sucks, but Stanford, fill in the blanks. 
And that's how I feel about UCLA. They wear baby blue and white and gold. We're dark blue. They stole our fight song. They named themselves the Bruins, the Baby Bears. Cal Berkeley, we are the grown-up Big Bears. So I hate UCLA. So watching UCLA lose was outstanding. Before we jump into the program, discuss anything that struck you from last week, from the acquisition of the running back, any of the free agent moves, anything stand out, anything the Steelers fans should be paying attention to? And what was your thoughts on the signing of the running back from last week? Honestly, I think it, it's it, – this is probably true of every fan base, but I find being within the, the Steelers fan base in particular, there's reason to believe in that kind of underdog type of player. Wow, which I definitely think Balage fits in. Kalen Balage is the running back in, in question here. I think he fits in that mold if he didn't have three years in the league already or whatever it is. Um, a, a prolific college runner. You can when you watch his film in college, you can see why he's he's the big kid. You know, he he's he looked like he was playing Pop Warner, and he's the nine year old who's shaving before the other kids are. He's just bigger than everybody else is, and he ran you know, angry. Uh, you, you enjoy that part about him. If he's going to be successful as a pro, I want to think he would have been by now. Um, he, he's had ample opportunity to do so. Um, I, I think, you know, not that they are going to announce a guy as being signed as a camp body, but, you know, two things with that. I, I really think more the better right now, especially in training camp. Um, you, you go through a lot of guys. There, there are a lot of transactions involving running backs across the NFL during training camp. It seems to me more like they, they're giving him an opportunity in a weight room key to get ready for training camp. I, I don't think he's anything more than that. Um, two, you, if you're Mike Tomlin, if you're Kevin Colbert, you are going to kick over every rock you possibly can in an effort to solve your short yardage situation. It's been horrible. That's something we've talked about multiple times on this show too, Lance. They're they're not just going to get better. They've got to try a lot of different things. Uh, they, they're they're seeking somebody to take the spot, and I think if you add another dog into that fight, that's fine. Um, I'm just not expecting him to be on the roster at the end. If he is, I, I, there's no reason for us to imagine that he's any better than what they have right now, anyway. So, uh, if anything, to me, what it would suggest is they're looking to take a dude early in this draft. They're going to get a running back with a premium pick. It's not going to be Benny Snell, Jalen Samuels, whoever else they're taking in the mid-rounds anymore that every analyst will tell you is the right move with running backs unless you're the Steelers because they can never find one who's any real difference than, 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 it, than the ones they already have. But I, I don't think that move is any different um, than their, their past forays into uh, free agency with running backs, veterans in particular. I, th I think he's there to, to – take some carries uh, away from the other guys that might need a rest or probably end up getting hurt like most uh, running backs do, particularly in training camp. I, I think they're going to draft a guy uh, pretty high in this draft. And I think that's going to be the guy this season. He's a dad. He's a, he, he's a guy. I coined a phrase about guys like him and I just call them dash guys. Meaning when you look at a roster chart and you look at a depth chart, once you get past about the second, you know, second on a depth chart, third on a depth, you just see dashes. He's a dash guy. He's just a guy that's a dash. You may know his name. You may not. But knowing the Steelers crazy fan base, there's probably about 10,000 guys with Balazs jerseys already. <laughs> but he he's just a dash guy. He's a guy that nobody will know after 
last week. But I want to jump into one phrase when we talked about it after the show last week, because last week we talked about can you build, you know, for the future with one step in the past. And I came up with a, a with a thought and I just want to say it on this show so we can have it marked on the record. Sexy tanking. I think last week we concluded that by bringing Ben Roethlisberger back and making him and be, with him being back, you can sexy tank. You can look at him and think that the Steelers are really trying to compete for a championship because the statement says that. Because logically, you would think if we bid, if we bring Ben Roethlisberger back, we're trying to compete for a championship. But under the surface, you really aren't. You're beginning the rebuild. So in effect, you're sexy tanking or sexy rebuilding. You're putting a nice coat of makeup on it, a little smoky eye, some lipstick, <laughs> some eyeliner, some blush, a little cute dress, little sachet, some pumps, some heels. Sexy tanking. <laughs> That's what the Steelers are doing. Before we jump into the show, what's your thoughts on the 17 games? Any thoughts? Um, it, it's something we've known that was going to come for a while. I think what's more interesting to me is just how they ended up paying for it. And the fact they got 17 instead of 18, um, they wanted 18. They negotiate down to 17 by giving, uh, the, the, the large group of minimum level players, a, a significant raise. They're paying out some money for it. They're not getting entirely what they want. And it, it's, it's interesting to me that the union is going to define the move as, um, it really the reactions from the well-established, highly paid veterans, uh, uh, Richard Sherman, for example, it, to, to put it at that level, um, I, I think is, is interesting in the sense that the vote was extremely close on the CBA that gave the owners the opportunity to bump it up to 17 games. You knew they were going to, you knew it was going to happen. Now is, is easily the best time for them to be able to do it. Um, the Richard Sherman level players, guys that are well-established have been paid you know, handsomely over the last several years, uh, you you can understand the the sacrifice that they have to make. It's that lower level that doesn't get anything out of it either way. So the fact that they're getting a raise is basically the NFL buying their vote for the CBA that had 17 games in it. Um, they wanted 18. They weren't able to, to negotiate that successfully. So it, it's, it's interesting on a lot of different levels. As far as there being a 17th game, I feel – We'll, we'll experience maybe a little bit more fatigue than usual. Um, a bad team at the end of the season, you only, you only can watch so many games. Um, that's going to get old. I think we will start to see and hear, unfortunately, uh, whether it's premature or otherwise, the, the idea of load management in the NFL. Um, maybe it is the running backs. You know, Maybe, maybe that's how Balazs gets a job. I don't know. Uh, there, there'll be another game outside of, of what used to be the annual um, Steelers versus Browns throwaway in Week 17. Right. Now in Week 18 becomes that game, but maybe 17 still is one that uh, the top teams aren't going to put as much into, You know, just to kind of slow things down a little bit. Uh, a lot of different ways that it can go. Um, I don't think we will notice much short of records breaking and the debate that will come with that over the next right, right. 15 years, which is what happened in the seventies anyway. So um, there, there a lot of things will come with it. I don't know how many of those are anything uh, uh, better than a superficial version of, of the typical debate and argument that comes with sports. That's interesting that you say that I'm going to probably hold my comments on the 17 games. We'll see. 
Um, I just laugh at Roger Goodell when he talks about, oh, it's not really an extra game because we play 20 games anyway because of preseason. So I'm just like, geez, this guy. I'm just like, come on, man. Call it what it is. We get it. Yeah, I mean, that's nonsense. You know it's nonsense. We're we're fine. No significant starter plays in a preseason more than a few snaps anyway. Come on, man. Like, I don't know. It, It just feels like it's funny when somebody lies to you intentionally and tries to mask it behind some other talk I, I just laugh but i want to apologize it's about 12 minutes into the show and we have not jumped into the topic hopefully you guys are sticking with us i'm going to try to do a better job to jump into the topics a little bit more early but hey we're having fun with it please stick with us and please subscribe when you're on youtube so the title of this episode is pulling back the steel curtain on the steelers draft process after we did the show last week we started talking about the draft and some of the myths around the draft. And in our discussion, I realized I don't have a firm understanding of the draft process and sort of how the draft works. One of those reasons why is because full disclosure, I don't really like the draft. Um, And two, I just would rather just wait to see the guys play. We'll see. We'll see if they can play. We'll see if the philosophy that the Steelers took for this particular draft class, if it was effective. And thirdly, I learned years ago that the only way to evaluate a draft or a football team in any particular way is wins and losses. And sometimes that's affected by the draft. Largely, sometimes it isn't. 2007, it was when they had a fantastic draft under Tomlin, when they took Timmons. And, you know, and so sometimes it is. Sometimes things change and it affects the team in a great way. Sometimes it doesn't, but you still draft well because you get good players, but you don't win. So, That's kind of why I've been kind of disinterested in the draft. But in our discussion, you brought up some good things because it just showed me I really have a, you know, that kind of a juvenile understanding of how the draft process works. So I want to peel back that onion a bit. And so first question is, describe what you think, Neil, is the Steelers draft philosophy over recent years. The philosophy that recent years, let me put it like this. I'm going to call that the last decade probably closer to 2013 to now and the reason i would say that is because 2012 i think something happened that year that that is not typical uh when you're drafting 24 overall and that is for the best prospect at the ideal position of need falling into your lap if you need a reminder it's david DeCastro out of stanford i know i know what they do that you can't say on the air lance but stanford's um in, next to andrew luck their best prospect. And I've talked to a lot of scouts that have said you watched to, to see Andrew Luck, but you walked away from the game thinking about David DeCastro. He was a phenomenal guard for his age. He was, in, in my opinion, and that this is, you know, not a high level by any stretch. In my opinion, though, as somebody who's watched a lot of prospects over the years and know what I'm looking at, I don't know if I've seen a better non-quarterback NFL prospect than I saw with David DeCastro at that point. I didn't research a Calvin Johnson as well. I was a lot younger at that point. I I didn't get into it as much as I would in my later years. But David DeCastro was about as perfect a guard you would see in college. And the the transition for him to the NFL was not going to be very difficult or bumpy. That is the kind of thing that makes a prospect. Those types of prospects are not usually available at 24 overall, even at a position like guard, which has gone up in value tremendously um, over that last decade. DeCastro might kind of been at the, the forefront of that. 
um, to, to put it this way, I don't know whether you heard the soundbite or not, Lance, but um, before the Washington game this past year, they, they showed a clip of Mike Tomlin on the sidelines uh, talking to Chase Young, the number two overall pick, the, the defensive end out of Ohio State. Tomlin went up to him, kind of dramatically sized him up and said, man, you got to lose a lot of games to get a guy that looks like you. Those yeah, elite-level prospects, those super freak athletes that can play the position well, they go quickly. It's not a, not a coincidence. Um, it, there are some guys that are just dudes, and those are the guys that go top five. Uh, Chase Young is a guy that, that clearly is going to go one or two in every draft that, that's ever been had. You don't get those guys at 24. So really what it's about for the Steelers, and this is this is true of every team, you have certain philosophies that you establish. This tends to come from the general manager. The general manager is going to say, our first round picks are this, 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 and this. It, it's a fairly extensive list that can include your physical characteristics, um, the position that you play matters as well. Certain level of character, if they can give a, a numerical value to that, some do that. Um, a, a, a certain college size, perhaps, a level of experience in college. All these things combined are unique to that team when they say we want this in the first round. At the same time, they're also evaluating their team, not just for this year, but for the future, three years down the line, five years down the line, and they're building a plan of how to do that. In their negotiations, you know, among themselves, discussing this philosophy, um, discussing the cost of players that they have, who they're planning to keep, who they might lose, who they're going to lose, all of that, they're, they're going to decide what positions of need are the biggest for them over the next three years. It is not just one season, okay? It, okay. It's, when, even when you're after 24, it, your draft is not purely about that season. They're not only drafting guys they feel that can play right now because the dirty little secret here is college football players are not all that good at football. They need time to develop. They need time to mix into their system and play within the team that drafted them. That's not something that comes right out of the box unless you're Chase Young. And again, you need to be drafting number two overall to get Chase Young. So if, if you're drafting 24, you're looking for the guys who match your core philosophy for a first round pick and who are at a position of need of your future, not immediately necessarily, but in your, your future. That creates a, a probably 200 million different options that you might get available, but it is never going to be the same as every other team. It's never going to be the same as Todd McShay, as Mel Kuyper, as Luke Easterling, whoever. And that, that, that's not to discredit the work that they do. All of that said, I'll get to the question. I didn't forget it, I promise. <laughs> the, the Steelers' philosophy, in my mind, 2013 is kind of the start of – 2013 is the end of one philosophy and what seems to be the start of another one for 2014. 2013, first overall pick, Jarvis Jones. Not, not a good pick for a variety of reasons. I don't – I will have 15 lifetimes and never know as much as Kevin Colbert will know about football this week. I'm not at all suggesting I'm on that level, but there was nothing about Jarvis Jones that really should have objectively suggested he's a legitimate first round pick, except if you consider the Steelers did not really prize athleticism as highly as they probably should have. Jarvis Jones was a flat, mediocre athlete, period. 
I don't care how many sacks he had in college, beating up on on true freshman tackles, which is how he got like half of his his senior year. By the way, he not a quick twitch guy, not explosive. He's, he was a hustler. He was an effort guy. He could last forever on the field, but it, you know you don't get six seconds to get to the quarterback in the NFL the way you do in college. They drafted Jarvis Jones. That was a massive mistake from from the start. You could see that this guy is at best a mid round player. Um, didn't do anything. Washed out of the league. I think in, in I don't think he even played a fifth year. I think he had four years. Um, yeah, I think so. He didn't he didn't play for another team, I believe. I, I think he got signed. I don't think he played again. It was with the Cardinals. I don't think he played. Okay. He might have played, but probably special teams or something. Wasn't a good player, and you you could see that early on. He wasn't hurt or anything like that. It wasn't his attitude. He worked, but he's just not very good. Um, the next year, the first round, who do they take? Ryan Shazier. Ryan Shazier to this day, might be one of the three most athletic defensive players the Steelers had ever drafted. If you watched him play, it was like, oh, my Lord, this guy can fly. He is all over the place. And I'm not talking about his his, 40, his pro day 40 time, which was ridiculous. I think it was like 4-3-6 or something like that. He was a, a freak athlete on the field. He had good instincts. Not a good linebacker per se, but a prospect. This is again, you're drafting for your future. Let me pause you. Let me pause you real quick, Neil, and just give you some flowers. If you guys didn't listen to our show back in the day, Neil correctly picked that the Steelers would take Ryan Shazier that year. And much of it, I don't know if you remember, Neil, but you 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 called it you dead on, and it was from what I think you're going to say now, largely due to his physical traits. It was almost entirely because of his physical traits. And the reason I bring this up, not to, to just pat myself on the back for being the only person who called Shazier, I got savaged for that prediction, by the way. You would, you'd be amazed the amount of people that ripped me for that. It's more of the fact that he is the polar opposite of Jarvis Jones, who was taken 17, Shazier was 15, very similar in, in your point in the draft. Shazier was the athletic opposite of Jarvis Jones. And to add to that, so was Bud Dupree who now plays the same position as Jarvis Jones in 2015. He's their pick. And maybe even closer to a description of being opposite in that uh, Bud Dupree was an Olympian. It's just a, a, an amazing athlete for his size. He shouldn't be capable of running as yeah. fast as he did. And he really, all due respect to Bud Dupree. I love Bud Dupree. I, I'm really happy for the money that he got. He was clearly a project, perhaps the most raw player that Kevin Colbert ever drafted in the first round. Bud Dupree didn't know what he was doing at all. You watch his college tape. His coaches did him wrong. I mean, he really, he was playing everywhere, all over the field. He was recruited as a tight end. Before summer camp even broke at Kentucky, he was on the defensive side of the ball. They didn't know what they were doing with him. And with that, I was always like, his lack of production doesn't really suggest it, it seems weird. A player that size and that athleticism should have production. Even if he's playing in the, the SEC, he should have decent production. He didn't. And I think mostly it's because he didn't know what he was doing. It took him a while to train him up. But again, opposite of Jarvis Jones. Jarvis Jones was the non-athlete who had a ton of experience, a ton of production in the SEC. They saw what they got with Jarvis Jones. And they decide, my opinion, 2014, 2015, they decided – they're going all in on on athleticism. That is now much higher in their level of priority than it was previously. And you know, when you say that, Neil, it's funny because listeners, we're going to build like a Steelers algorithm when we try to predict the 2021 pick. And it's funny, 
I say the same thing of what you're alluding to, but I say it more so from a baseball perspective because I played more baseball. And it's particularly with pitchers that I would rather err on a pitcher that has a power arm than a finesse guy that has to be fine and perfect. I can teach a guy how to pitch. I can't teach a guy how to throw 98 cheese for seven innings in August and his arm is still absolutely live. I can't teach that. I can teach him how to pitch, but I cannot teach him how to throw cheese. High hard gas. That's exactly it. And this this is one thing I, I would encourage all fans to look at is their coaches, okay? Their, their purpose in being is to teach guys how to play. <clears throat> in my opinion, just my useless two cents here, I, I think too much is made out of college players as if they are far better than they really are. At the same time, I would equate it to this. Look at college baseball players. Look at college hockey players. These are guys that have, they, they play in sports that have a, a much greater international flavor to them. And there, there's a much more segmented process of getting to the next level. When you go to college in those sports, it's either you were really good and financially it just didn't work for you, or you got better as you were in college. But either way, when you watch it, you don't have the same feeling that the players are as great as their football counterparts are. Why is that? It, it doesn't make any sense. They're, they're still the same age of athletes. They've oftentimes, at the college level at least, they've, they've grown up similarly um, they, they have the advantages that they have and they're working and they're getting better, but they are seen fully as prospects because they're not there yet. But in right. football, right. That's interesting. Football, they're all seen to be all pros the second they step onto a pro field. And it, it's not even close to the case. You get some rookies who are really good. And you also get some rookies who perform really well because they're being set up to be really good from a, a, a system that can handle that. Joe Burrow, just came off a fantastic rookie year in which in a vacuum, objectively, he was completely mediocre as a player, regardless of anything else, he was completely mediocre and he put up one of the better rookie quarterback seasons you're ever going to see. You you don't see him much because the players need to grow. They need to develop. They're not done yet. So when we're talking about traits versus production, what you're really saying is exactly as you did. I can teach him how to do all these things. I can't teach him to have the arm that he has. I can't teach him to have the vision that he has as a runner. He has balance that I can't show him how to do it. I can show him where to go. I can build an offense that's catered around his ability to do this thing or that thing. I can even, this is also something the Steelers are really good at lately. I can get him to cut weight and show him what type of player he's going to be if he sticks to that. Le'Veon Bell, Chase Claypool, both of these guys are, are Steelers players who had remarkable rookie seasons. And Bell's wasn't great because he was still – Bell was probably still a little bit too big at that point. A decent rookie season. Claypool had a great rookie season. Bell shed 20 pounds from his rookie year to his second year, and he was an all-pro player. He was a completely different player that year. At that point, everyone's saying, well, you took him in the second round. You know, why didn't you go in the first? Well, he was 240 pounds, and he was a light-footed zone runner. It didn't make any sense. Claypool looked like a battleship on the field. He had no mobility in college. And you, you saw it. Look, you watched the film. That's why he went in the second round. He wasn't dynamic. He cut a bunch of weight, and he was a, a multi-route receiver for the Steelers in his first year. So it, it, it's what you can do with the guy that you have. What are we able to do with him? What can we fix about him that's going to make him do the things we want him to do to be successful here? That's how a team establishes value. So um, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, Neil. 
So when you look at, you stopped at Bud Dupree, you look at Artie Burns, you look at TJ Watt, you look at Terrell Edmonds, you look at Devin Bush, and you look at Chase, Chase Claypool. It seems as if all of those high-level picks, and of course Claypool was a second-round pick, they fit that same physical framework. So it looks like what you're saying as we build this draft algorithm that physical traits started to trump everything. We're going to go high on physical traits. We may minimize. Are you saying also by going high on physical traits, they're minimizing college production? Um, so are you, uh, so do those players represent that shift that you de- demonstrated or illustrated where they're banking more on the physical stuff? Yeah, I, I think if you look at the defenders, the best way that I've, I've had to explain it is there was a time in which the, the Steelers' defense – was a dominant unit in all areas, all depths of the field. And they got that way because they drafted Joey Porter in the third round. Okay. Not long after that, Joey Porter became Jarvis Jones at 17 overall. There was a, because of the success that they had in identifying really athletes, ironically to this conversation, Joey Porter was a great athlete. He's too small to put his hand on the ground and rush as a seven technique player. The Steelers played a a style of defense that not everybody did. So these types of players were more available. They had their pick of them in the middle rounds because the the hard-nosed dominant defenses tended to be four-man fronts, tended to have hand-in-the-dirt defensive edges. Defenses became much more varied, much more multiple, largely because of the success that a a team like Pittsburgh had, uh, Baltimore, New England, they had the the tweener edge guys. They They could put versatile players around that and come up with a very tough defense. Joey Porter's value in college, and Joey, you watch him in college, Joey Porter was a good player in college. He was not somebody who slipped between the cracks. He was a really good player. Um, There was just far less opportunity for a player of his makeup, except for Pittsburgh. Then it became, it becomes so valuable of a position Jarvis Jones is grossly inflated to the point where they really needed edge help. He played the position, and because it seems, I'm not saying this is a fact, but it seems, and I have evidence to to support it, uh, Jarvis Jones' value at a position combined with the right level of college experience and production within that gave him an advantage over anybody else. Not the case for Bud Dupree, like we said. Um, To some extent, T.J. Watt, who tested as a great athlete. Mike Tomlin had a great quote on T.J. Watt, who went 30 overall. Keep that in mind. He's not not raw. He's just inexperienced, which means he really didn't get on the field very much, which was true. Teams valued that less. The Steelers said, we want athletic traits, and frankly, we're drafting 30th overall. Take the athletic project. That's what they do with these middle to late 20s and into the 30s selections. They want the athletic project. I'm not going to say that Artie Burns was a high-level athlete, but he fit the position of need. He played at a larger school, had some production, had great measurements. He was built like an elite-level cornerback, and he was a good athlete. Not a great athlete, but he was a good athlete. You, you couldn't take that away from him. Everything else, they felt that they could teach him. I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that probably didn't work out the way that they would have liked, but right. he still fit the same type of mold. you know. And he went, what, 25 overall? Watt went 30 the, the year the next year. So it, it's a matter of athleticism 
Yeah, for for the defensive side of the ball, just because we haven't seen a first round pick go on offense since since DeCastro, um, and then Pouncey before that, so they they haven't taken a skill player uh, with the first round pick. I don't think since Mendenhall, and that that's a completely different situation come two thousand nine compared to today. Totally different NFL. So um, I I think they want to prize athleticism with a combination of measurements above anything else, and there are uh, there there's statistical models that that some people use it's rumored that that teams use it uh pretty extensively but don't talk about it for obvious reasons i don't know if you're familiar with spark at all but it, it was a, a proprietary yes. system that was developed by nike in concert with the, the seattle seahawks that took all of these things kind of like what you're saying about us trying to make an algorithm of what they're picking and uh you know it blend that together and come up with a composite score to normalize athletes against each other right. at, at various positions based on what they want out of those positions. We don't know specifics on that, but you can get a good feel uh, for what they're looking for if you look at their their drafts since 2013 through to now. And Spark actually fits in pretty well with it. Ryan Shazier was a Spark Hall of Fame member. So was Bud Dupree. Um, Artie Burns didn't score all that well in it, but it, it he didn't, I shouldn't say he didn't score like top three at his position, but he was good. He had a solid spark score. Uh, TJ Watt was really good, but incomplete. He didn't have a lot of the data just because of injuries and things like that. Um, Terrell Edmonds, great spark guy, bad film, not productive, great spark guy. Uh, you, you, you get a sense in uh, Claypool freak when it comes to spark because of his, his size and his athleticism, mm -hmm. they're trying to get dudes on the field, you know, the, these high level athletes at key positions. They're, they're focusing on certain areas and hoping to build out uh, the, the bulk of their team with these high level athletic players. That's their first round model today. Um, Jarvis Jones, fortunately for the Steelers looks like an outlier to that, or at the very least, a strong reason to change whatever they used to do right, uh, right. into something that they do now. And they've done fairly well in the first round. I don't think anybody can really complain, although they do. They they they, they don't have much of a leg to stand on when it comes to six, seven drafts in a row. One, yes, I understand Artie Burns didn't work out. You, of course, knew that on draft day like everybody else did. It, it, either way, he fit a, a, a model of what has given them a lot of success recently. And, and that, in long term, is more important. And and that's fair. I mean, it is football. There are still a bunch of variables. Uh, you, you just you just trust your system and you trust your model. Let's jump into uh, another a point I wanted to raise. And it's funny that you say that uh, about getting athletes because my daughter plays soccer. She's a very good athlete. And, and when I stress to her, I stress to her is just be free. Don't be afraid to make mistakes, but just play fast and aggressive. Whatever you do, do it fast. If you make a mistake, do it fast. Be all out and do it fast. Your coach is a great coach. She will teach you. She will she she will harness all that athleticism and let you do it in the right way. But she can't teach you athleticism. You can't play nine in soccer and be slow. You can't do it. What does BPA mean? What does it really mean? I think there's a misconception about BPA, aka, or better known as best player available. What does that truly mean? in the context of the Steelers and in the context of the draft overall? BPA is what I would refer to as the line of delineation between draft Twitter and general managers. And again, <laughs> I, I'm not here to, to denigrate what people write about. I manage people who do this for a living. It, the, the, the reality is, though, they're making 
a decision from a completely different mindset than the general manager is making them. They're not the same things. So I, I call it BPA because BPA is totally different for, I'm going to pick on Luke in this case, my draft wire editor, Luke Easterling, who uh, he's a great guy. One of my good friends, he's good at what he does. His version of, of best player available is based off of his vertically aligned numeric board of who the best players are. It's much more literal. A general manager doesn't have to make a pick for 31 other teams in the NFL. He's not interested in what 30, 31 other teams are doing. He cares about his team and is not just for this draft. It is for the future. It is for financially where they're going, strategically where they're going. For all we know, the Steelers are going to run a completely different defense in the next two years. We don't know that. So they could be drafting based on that. So best player available is is completely different. They're com- opposite, not, not opposite. They're, they are indistinguishable terms for Kevin Colbert compared to Luke Easterling. And that I'm not saying that that's a question of intelligence or insight or anything. It's that Colbert has a completely different goal in mind than Luke does. So Luke's best player available is not going to be Kevin Colbert's best player available. Kevin Colbert is managing a gigantic system of evaluation. That's not something that you do uh, with a single uh, Excel spreadsheet lined up in the A column of player after player after player. You can't organize (laughs) that. And that concept works if it's just you doing it. You don't have to convince yourself of anything. If you are working with dozens of scouts, uh, dozens of coaches, a head coach, an owner, all these people that have highly educated and, and, and strong convictions, strong reasons to back this thing or that thing, you need a way to organize all of that information. That's up to the general manager. What they tend to do is I, I've seen this with two different teams and it, it's not you know direct insight, but I know that it, it's how they organize it, not who they're putting where. If you want to look at it like this, use the example of the Excel spreadsheet in your single A column list of players. That is a vertical board. They don't do that. What they do, instead of establishing the best player in the draft first, which is fairly pointless if you're, you're the Steelers drafting a 24, they don't care who number one is. They're not going to get that player. If they want to fill that in, fine. What they're doing is concerning themselves with themselves. They're looking at the internally the positions they want to fill. That becomes their primary priority, okay? With that, they're filling – think of it like buckets. They're filling buckets with prospects who then fit that first-round grade, which is the philosophy that they've established as an organization. If the player has all these things, he's a first-round player. They put those into the buckets, and the buckets are what are organized in whatever order they determine it to be. Uh, And it doesn't have to be vertical. It's not this trumps this every single time. It's Mm -hmm. horizontal. They're across each each other, and they're saying, saying, we need a center. We need a running back. We need a wide receiver. Those are positions of need for us. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this real quick. Let me pause you real quick, Neil. The buckets, so – I'm visualizing it, and I get your and I get your analogy. So, and where I work, I work at a certain level, right? There's a certain level of granularity in which I see it, but there are managers, division heads, department heads, and CEOs that see the entire picture, and they're trying to sort out what the organization needs, and their viewpoint and their vantage point of it is. 
much more than six weeks. It's six, seven years and how all of this fits into that. But let me ask you something about the buckets. Are the buckets prioritized in some sort of vertical fashion? Are they ranked? How does it work with the buckets when after you place the players in the buckets? My understanding is they put those into, in in some cases, they can put them into tiers. And so call it tier one. These are the positions we want to address the most. And the idea behind that is to be able to put six or seven likely prospects that you want to draft in the first round coming up. If a quarterback is not of a need of, of your team and you know that it's not, you're not spending a bunch of time scouting quarterbacks. And that's a decision that was made in the past. So your quarterback bucket might not even have anything in it. With that. Your quarterback bucket might not include first, second, or third round players because you're not going to draft one. So if right. you evaluate him as a first round pick, he's not in the bucket to draft. He's not a player that you're going to look at. The point is you want to narrow your decisions down based on things that you've established that you want before you get on the clock. Then your decision should be as simple as possible. And it it represents the input from everybody that you're paying to give input on it. That's organizational psychology. It's not about, well, this guy's ranked 16 on my list, but you know I really need the guy who's ranked 29, so which one do I do? This isn't fantasy football. You can't organize things that way. So the buckets themselves in your first round are going to be guys that have a first round grade. You might go through the draft and have your top position of need not have a guy who fits a first round grade. That is what you do to prevent yourself from from reaching for somebody. He needs to be a first round guy if you're going to draft him in the first round, right? That's logical. It might not be possible, though, because then if – I know this for fact as well. Teams do not give out 32 first-round grades. They don't give out 40 first-round grades. There are usually 19 to 23 or 24, somewhere in there. Based on their philosophy, they don't think there should be 40 guys that should get a first-round grade. That doesn't make any sense. If you have that many, you should narrow it down. It should become even harder to get a first-round grade, which is what they do. They want there to be less first-round talent than there are picks available. That seems weird, but what they do to counter that is they create another bucket that's between a a, a straight first-round grade and a second-round grade. What they call that, I've heard this a couple different ways, uh, a one-two bucket, like first, second bucket, a 1A bucket, a 1B bucket, something that says like second-round plus. He's not – this player doesn't fit all of our criteria for a first-round grade. So let's but break he this is down. Better let's break than this a down. second round guy. Let's break this down, Neil. So let's say the Steelers they have a, a quarterback bucket. We know that the top four guys will not be guys that they put in the bucket because, or, or based on what you're saying, I'm assuming the top four guys, Lawrence, Wilson, Lance, and, and Fields, will not be in the bucket. In that bucket. Let's say they put Mac Jones and, and Kyle Trask, or uh, what's the kid's name from Texas A and M? I don't even know. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's Mund, I, don't know. I think it's Mund. I think it's Mund. Yeah, Kelly Mund. Yeah. I think it is. So let's say so. Construct the quarterback bucket based on the one-two tiering system. So what would that bucket look like? I would think 
it would be, and again, we, we have the Luke Easterling style, which is going to say these guys in a vertical order. I would think um, it, it, the Steelers probably more than anybody else, we have nothing really to base what they call a first-round quarterback on because they don't draft any in the first round. Right. Um, we have heard. <laughs> right. We have heard. Now, I, I don't even know if I bought this at the time, but we heard that they considered Mason Rudolph to be a first-round pick. Uh, they drafted him in the third, which not which means not only did they pass on him in the first round, which is where they thought he should have gone, they passed on him in the second round. So it's great value there if you really thought he was a first-round pick. But it also proves exactly what I'm talking about. It, it says we did not prioritize a quarterback in round one or two. Right, it's not right. about the player. It's about the right. position. It's about their future need. They then can say, well – Quarterback in the third round was something we were willing to consider. But going into the draft, we said we are not going to take a quarterback in the first or the second round. Either that is true or Kevin Colbert is flat out lying and they didn't think that Mason Rudolph was worth a first or a second round pick. One of those two things are true, but maybe it's both too. You know, so it, as that I, is possible. So as I formulate this in my mind, and I don't know if you guys know, I, I, I've designed databases probably for the last 25 years. And so when we grant security permissions, when we do databases, we don't do it by individuals. We do it by groups. So we will give mm -hmm. a group a certain level of permissions and name it, say, group A, group B, group C, group D. And your level of permission will shift based on the priority of that group. And so let's say you have, you know, Lance, Neil, you know, your writer that you're discussing, whoever else. Right. We'll just put you in a separate groups. Group A, you'll have more permissions. Group B, you'll have less. Group C, you'll have less. D, less E. You'll basically only be able to turn it on and look at it. So, and thinking of that in terms of how I laid that out, if your bucket isn't prioritized at a certain level, is there any way you can trump it? So let's say your bucket is basically based on your needs. Your bucket is sort of around third round. Even if we think you have a first round grade, but we put you in that bucket, is there a way that you could get drafted above what we what we stated that bucket represents in terms of need? I I clearly couldn't say that no, that that wouldn't be possible. But the idea of this system is to make that decision ahead of time. Uh, to use your analogy, which is perfect, by the way, and this is why I love talking to you about this stuff. It is database management. It's the same concept. The The problem is doing it the Luke Easterling way. I kind of feel bad for saying that. It's not his way. He didn't come up with it. Um, doing it the way that Luke would do it would mean every guy in your uh, uh, second bucket would need to be ranked. And that doesn't make any sense because the guy that's, say, 17th has the exact same access as the guy who's 25th. How do you pick somebody in there? You right. have to add in something tangible that is not directly related to the individual. You have to have reasons to qualify or disqualify people. This is how you make a decision. If you're doing a decision matrix, this is what you come up with. For a, for a player who gets, say, a third round grade to be taken by a team in the second round, I, I, I don't know how much of this I can say. I know there absolutely is – I've, I've spoken to a scout who told me a story about a certain linebacker who's doing really well in the NFL right now, doesn't play for the Steelers, 
they had him, his team had him as a, a third round player. They took him in the second because there was an unexpected run of linebackers ahead of him, and they didn't think he'd be there for the third round. You're exercising then not the player, the position, the value right. of the position, not right. this player, uh, had more value to them at that point. Does that make right. sense? I don't know that if I'm explaining that very sense. well. They're saying he has this grade. He's the best of what's left. We scouted him in the third, but the need for us to have a linebacker now right. trumps that. So, yes, you can interchange those things. And I'm not even saying that position uh, or value of, of player matters more than the other. This is where the BPA thing comes in. You can't say BPA if there's no difference to you between 25 and 45, which is often right. what happens. Right. You're in the same bucket. Right, you're. Why right. is this player better than the other player? That's for you to figure it out. But if your bucket is twenty players deep, you're gonna have a real tough time. It, it's right. that, that's not a very scientific way to look at it. So at that point, you're talking about position of need, which cuts off say a third of that list. You know, and from there, it. it I don't know. There's a lot of things that you could argue about. But the idea here is to eliminate possibilities. Uh, and come up with a unified consensus decision of who you want to take that's the best for you based on everything that you've input into your system. So, yes, there are examples in which you could do that, but this system on its face is designed to prevent you from having to reach that conclusion uh, as the clock is ticking and because of you know lack of uh, clarity on what you're trying to do. You don't want 20 players to choose from when you're on the clock. You right, want like right. two, three, and that right. might come up. And at that point, who knows? It, it, Ty goes to Tomlin for all we know. I mean, we heard the story about him banging the table for Jason Worlds, a player that that uh, Kevin Colbert didn't really want. He decided with Tomlin, that's the guy that they took. You can come into that, but if that is how you're deciding every pick, you're going to kill each other by the end of the draft. You're not going to have any consistency of who you're picking, right. and you're not sticking to your philosophy. So best right. player available as far as fans are concerned it is a much more detailed process and it results in far fewer players being that best player option. It just doesn't happen that cleanly uh, when you're trying to organize this uh, to get a, 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 a to get 100% consensus across the board from an entire organization of people who are paid a lot of money uh, to make these decisions. So before we jump into the draft algorithm, Quickly explain, and, and, and as a fan of Steelers Wire, I, I'm going to request that you do an article about the creation of the buckets, and let your guy Luke do the article. So, I <laughs> give Luke a call after this. Hey, got an assignment for you. Get to work. Yeah, he'll do this. Uh, briefly explain, based on all the things that we've talked about, about why the Steelers do so well drafting wide receivers as opposed to corners my thought that i've always thrown out there in terms of wide receivers is because the coach played the position and and the coach probably has some intimate level of detail in terms of how the position is played how he wants the position is how he wants the position to be played and how he sees it and how it fits what's your thoughts on that i i think you you touched on my opinion uh most of it just right there whether, whether he played or not they have a philosophy on what they want out of all these positions. And they also have a, a level of priority on that. We can make that argument because Artie Burns was the first 
cornerback uh, the Steelers took in the first round in what, like 25 years, something like that. Chad Scott was the last one yeah. before Artie Burns. And based on Artie Burns alone, they might not do it for another 25 years. But the idea is with cornerbacks, it's never been the fundamental position of their defense. They've never invested a bunch of money into it. Um, for example, Joe Hayden, who really became available on a whim. I mean, I don't think they expected that. They jumped on an opportunity. And Steven Nelson, whose contract probably dipped below um, what they felt he was worth and found themselves in position to make a bargain. Those two players, I think, are like the only two players – with the exception of, of Ike Taylor and Cortez Allen for a year, I think those are the only times the Steelers have had two veterans on extensions playing. Uh, otherwise, it's, right. been, it's been a guy on a rookie contract with a Bryce McCain type or an Antoine Blake type, somebody they, they pulled off the scrap heap from somewhere and paid him nothing, or it's Ike Taylor and a, a guy on a rookie contract. Ike Taylor – Ike Taylor's made more money as being a cornerback. Well, I guess Hayden's probably topped him now, but for the longest time, Ike, Ike Taylor was the highest paid cornerback in Steelers history. It's because wow. they just never cut him. You know, he made you know, reasonable money for his position, but he was never, you know, top three or anything like that. They draft, they develop, and they let him walk. That's what they do with cornerbacks. Um, that doesn't answer the question, unfortunately, though. It, it They have a certain philosophy. Um, I think part of that philosophy is they want to develop. Uh, okay, let me let me get into this. Part of the the pick philosophy for rounds. Part of that is developmental. Um, it seems, based on who they've taken, the Steelers look at the fourth round as we should be getting a, a high end, high potential type of guy that might not play for us in year one. This is like the first level of, of red shirt player we want to take. First round is going to be the first guy we cut if we really can't fit him in anywhere and we want to get him on the practice squad. Third round picks are expected to play at least on special teams right away. And if you look back in their history, that, that's the way it's been. Second round picks are kind of hit and miss. Second round is really kind of up in the air with Colbert as far as what they're doing, except for they tend to be premium expensive positions that they need they're going to develop a little bit there might be a character concern there's a flaw with them in some way first round are your boy scouts your blue chip guys we want these guys for five years fourth round really seems like we're not totally sure uh on what his future is we just know that if we work with him for a bit he's going to turn into something uh martavis bryant is probably the most popular fourth round pick in steelers history uh, recent steelers history because of the way that he exploded in a week eight game against the, the Houston Texans. You you might remember that game back in, in uh, 2014. You went nuts. Keep in mind, Martavis Bryant didn't play a down. He didn't dress before that game. Right. Something right. happened. I forget what it was. Something happened. There was an injury somewhere in there that got him on the field. And he only played like 10 snaps. He caught that one big pass. And then from there, they started working him on the field. They, they started giving him more. By the end of that season, he was running a nasty slant which he wasn't doing in the beginning at all. He was just running flies. Teams would have to put a safety over the top to, to help the big play. When he started running inside stuff, he became lethal. But he didn't get to that point in week one. You know, he wasn't ready to play right away, at least they thought. They, they developed him. But the way that that season started, for the first half of that season, Bryant didn't get a hat. So he wasn't even on the field. Clearly a fourth-round guy they saw as a developmental project. Um 
I might argue, and not to, to bring up demons of the past, I might argue with Dree Archer being the 97th overall pick, he's as much a fourth round pick as he is a third. From a development standpoint, you could see what they might be trying to do with, with Archer. Um, I'll add this as well. James Conner. James Conner was a third-round comp pick, which, again, if we're going to argue he's a fourth-round pick, there's a pretty significant medical concern with James Conner. Not you know an ankle injury, but the fact that he had uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, that, that he was over and everything like that, but may not have had enough time. You're not sure how he's going to react to that two, three years down the line. By the way, Neil, that that 2017 draft looks pretty good now. It does, doesn't it? Yes, it <laughs> pretty does. solid. With, T, with TJ Watt, Juju Smith-Schuster, Cam Sutton, and, and James Conner. If and we I'm, want to look back on it, I, I meant to do this before the show. If we want to look back on it, it is not common for the Steelers to have signed all three of their first three picks. Yes, to yes. I was not, that doesn't that. happen often. And Juju, one year. Cam is essentially one year. Watt's going to get tagged. That's kind of the football. That, that's sort of how football is nowadays. But that, that's a great draft. You know, you, you have to love draft that. For them. If, if James Conner is easily your worst of the four, with the, the four seasons he gave Pittsburgh for nothing, really, finance-wise, that's a that's a pretty nice draft. You have to like that. Let, let's do this, Neil, real quick, because we're going to run a little bit long on the show. Let, let's build the buckets in terms, prioritize the buckets by position for the Steelers in this 2021 draft? For me, and it, this this won't be popular, um, I think inside linebacker is a the great mix a. of talent that's going to be uh, talent that's worth 24 overall as well as a position of need sometime or in, or in the, the very near future. I think center fits that. That's really not going to be popular, I know, except for the fact that the Steelers' last center, they took 18 overall. Kind of hard to say they're not going to take one twenty-four when it's the same staff on board. It's they the do a franchise damn, that loves centers. They do a damn good job. Probably the best in NFL history with center. So I'm fine with center being a high priority. Not to mention it's a complete dumpster fire right now. You talked about the sexy rebuild before. That theory is shot if BJ Finney is your starting center. I don't think there is a less <laughs> sexy player in the NFL than BJ Finney. Okay. He's a backup. Don't get me wrong. I I, I think he's a great player in, in the sense that He's a pro's pro. He's going to come in and do what he needs to do. He's not going to beat anybody. He might not get beaten, which is nice, but he's not going to go beat anybody. Not the guy you want starting, especially not in a one-year contract. They're looking to draft somebody. I would not be surprised if that's what they're going to look at in round one. All their so, moves right now suggest that. So priority position there. So let me get, let's me get let get two more buckets. So we're going to say the number one bucket, I'm going to say A, is inside linebacker. B is center. Give me your C and D in terms of priorities of, of oh, your buckets. I'm going to get killed for this. I I, I think running back is one as well. And I, it's mostly because I'll, – I'll say this, all right? A lot of this, too, is I'm cheating. 2009, the team doesn't do very well. Coming off of a championship year, hangover, injuries, whatever. They don't do very well. Their running game sucks. Among other things, their running game is terrible. Dan Rooney comes back from Ireland and says, hey, you know what? We need to run the ball. Let's get the band back together. He goes and brings in a bunch of ex-Steelers, and what do they do? They want to run the ball. Who's their first-round pick in 2010? Morkey's Pouncey. All right? They drafted, had just drafted a running back who barely played his rookie year because Ray Lewis broke him in half early on in the season. I don't remember that one. When Lewis yes, tagged Mendenhall in the hole. <laughs> yes, I do. That was, that was savage. <laughs> um, he's coming back. We want to run the ball. In one line of thinking, they went to a Super Bowl. You know, with, with with that kind of mentality in place. And as much as this sucks, 
they would have won the damn Super Bowl if the running back didn't fumble at midfield in the fourth quarter. They Mendenhall would have been the MVP of that game if he doesn't fumble. They were scoring on that drive. Heath Miller was laying tire tracks all over Clay Matthews. Everywhere he went, they were tagging him. They they would have scored in that drive. I think they would have won the game. Mendenhall would have been the MVP of that game. So uh, if, right or wrong, I don't necessarily agree with this. I think they're going to want to run. That's why I'm thinking running back and center – uh, in both positions of which have guys that could play day one for this team. I think they're going to look at both of them. I really do. So give me your D, give me your last, give me your last position in the bucket. I'm, I'm a guess. I'm going to guess. I'm a guess safety. I would say no to safety. Okay. And I, I will, I'll, I'll preface it by saying this, throw a dart at a board at this point, Lance, you're going to hit a Steelers position of need. So I'm not sure if <laughs> any much. of this is wrong, yeah. but yes. for me, I, I, I'm i going against history. Objectively speaking, for me, it would be offensive tackle, but I've also said offensive tackle like the last three years. This franchise, just like they love centers, they hate drafting offensive tackles in the first round. Okay? I don't even know who the last one was. Jermaine Stevens, maybe? Am I wrong on that? I don't, I don't know who yeah, they I'm take just, in the first I'm round. I'm just looking through here. Um yeah, I mean, the last offensive lineman they took in the first round was the Castro. Yeah, lineman. I'm talking tackle uh, specifically. They've taken yeah, a center in the through. first round before they've taken a, a tackle. They took Urbic in 2009 in the second okay. round. Wasn't he a third? No, he was a second rounder. I, I think he was out of UCLA. Yeah. That, that's why he washed out. They, they, cut um, <laughs> they cut him. He started for the Bills that year. They took Max Starks in, 20, in, in 2004. He they took... Three. Trey Essex is a third in 2003, the next year. Kendall Simmons was a guard. Guard, late uh, first. Marvell Smith, 2000, was a tackle in the second round. I think uh, he is the highest tackle they've drafted. He and Mike Adams, I believe, are the highest tackles they've drafted in the first Ferris, round. Ferris, they took uh, in Chris the third Ferris, round. He, Ferris is the UCLA kid. He's the one. Yes, that's, that's right. That's UCLA. <laughs> Chris Conrad, uh, second, uh, third round in 98. No, they have – yeah, You're right, Jermaine Stevens. Stevens. Jermaine Stevens is the last first-round tackle, and that was in 96. I was okay, 26 needless, years of Needless to say, some things have changed since 1996. Absolutely. You know? they, they don't draft tackles in the first round. Marvell Smith would make a very strong argument as being the best tackle in Steelers history. Do you realize that? Marvell Smith is wow. a good player. Marvell Smith went to one Pro Bowl. He played like eight seasons. He might be the best tackle that they've ever had. The, the franchise does not prioritize – uh, tackles for individual skill. They do not take them in the first round. Um, they don't even pay them very often. Keep in mind, uh, Alejandro Villanueva was picked up uh, basically uh, off the plane from Afghanistan after getting cut as a defensive lineman from the Eagles. They took him and basically said, for a year, you're going to do nothing but learn from Mike Munchak how to play tackle because you're going to take over for Kelvin Beecham next year. We don't want Kelvin Beecham because he's good and he's going to make a lot of money. We drafted him to be a, a utility guy, and it turns out he's a really good tackle. So we don't want him. <laughs> We're getting rid of Beecham. You're going to replace Beecham. And Villanueva also can make an argument as being one of the better tackles in Steelers history. So Let's do if- this. Let's do this, Neil. Not to cut you off. Let's do this. We're not going to do the draft algorithm because we're running past an hour, but we'll bring back the algorithm as we get close to the draft. The draft is about what? In about a month? About a month, yeah. A month from Thursday. So we'll do the draft algorithm, but based on these buckets, so we have the bucket A, inside linebacker, B, center, C is running back, and D, offensive tackle. Put a name 
in each of those and then pick the name that you think the Steelers will take in the first round? That's tough. Um, it, it's it's hard simply because 24 overall means there are 23 selections ahead of you. Reasonably speaking, which I can't say for certain, but going by general consensus, I would think these players would be available. Uh, my tackle would be the Derisaw kid. Um, I, I don't even know if he's going to make it to 24, being a tackle, uh, valuable position. Running back, I really like Javante Williams, and I think he has a lot of – we're drafting at 24, and we're not drafting again until 55. He's probably closer to 55, but he's not going to be there at 55. If we really want him, this is where we need to take him. And we've seen the Steelers do that. Artie Burns is, is probably why that happened. Terrell Edmonds, that's probably why that happened. In that one-two bucket, we're not sure if he differentiates much from the other players who were here, but enough, and he's at a position that we need to fill. So for me, uh, I, I Williams is a phenomenal player. I think he's going to be great. Whatever round he's taken in, I think he's going to be good. Um, they'd love to have him. Between Landon Dickerson and Creed Humphrey, the, the two centers, um, I, I think they're doing well with either of them. Um, I'd probably go with Dickerson just because I'm cherry picking the few badass reps that I've seen. Uh, he's a mauler looking kind of guy. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily fair, but I, I, I'd be happy with either one of them. Although I don't think either one of them should go 24 overall, but I don't think either of them are going to be there at 55. So again, same type of thing inside linebacker. Um, uh, the, the kid from Memphis is the one that, that everyone's talking about, um, Collins. I mean, he's – you can see why they would draft him, um, especially with some carryover from Bush's contract. I, I could see a, a very good player who would contribute well as a rookie, if not start. He would probably start. The center would start. The running back would start. I The tackle I don't know about, but it, the, the inside linebacker, if they're drafting him at 24, he's going to start. Um if not, don't draft him at 24. You know, if you really like Robert Spillane so much, you know, you don't need to draft an inside linebacker at 24 this year, my opinion. Um, there, there's a lot of time between now and then, and a lot of other things to look at, but I, I, I'd be okay, I think, with any four of those players. Um, and I'm sure very few people would agree with me, but logically speaking, it's probably going to be somebody like that. Before we get out of here, Neil, I'm going to assume you're going to be doing on Steelers Wire the bucket article, the one and two bucket. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're going to give your writer that assignment. So I want to make <laughs> sure that Steeler fans look for that article coming up this week on the buckets. I'm going to have to convince him to do it and be on draft wire, not Steelers Wire. I, I think uh, I, I'd probably have to write that one myself, and, and maybe I will. Yes, um, let, yes. Let's see. Let's see how much time I have available. Um, but it, it's, it's always a fun conversation. I think you're, you're in a, a great mindset to understand how and why they do that as well. And I'm not saying that anybody is stupid for not thinking otherwise. It's just the fact that no team is going to reveal this to anybody right. uh, publicly. The idea here is to get the best decision with the most input as they can. And there are a lot of people who are paid to weigh in on that. So it's not just Kevin Colbert making a board that's straight and easy to read. There's a lot of things that go into that. And that, that to me is what makes the draft so much fun. It, it, it's so interesting to see how it's all broken down. Um, but there's also the grip it and rip it school, which is, you know, this is a great player. I'd love to see him in Pittsburgh. You know, there's some people that uh, my, right. my favorite evaluations, guys like Jim Wexel do, do their work like that as well. 
uh, they don't get into the the real in-depth what-if types of things. They just talk about guys that they'd really like to see play. Um, yeah. That, to me, I think is is more fun because I like football. But how they come up with their decision is fascinating to me. And um, the Steelers are, are pretty consistent with how they do that. And that's a good way to think of it, I think, to put a, to the, put a bow on the show is that because a lot of us don't have a lens to how this works, you might as well just say who you want to play for the Steelers. I mean, you just might as well because you don't really have a lens to it. But I think that was a fantastic discussion. I think in hearing how it works, I'm a bit more interested in the draft, probably about a smidgen, you know, a couple granules of salt. I'm probably a little bit more interested <laughs> in the draft. I'm just more of a man. I'm 50 years old. Like, let me just watch what they do. <laughs> When they get on the field, call me back three years. I'll tell you if I thought that the draft was pretty good. Like we look back when we look at the 2017 draft, when we look at those four players, it turned out that those four players were really good. Probably at the time it was probably thought of that it was pretty mixed. But if there is there anything before we get out of here that you want uh, listeners to to look forward in terms of the Steelers wire content draft wire or anything that you're going to do this week? Uh, either of those two, for sure. I mean, it's a uh, draft wire. We've got um, our, our evaluations are getting cranked out. Um, that That's a tough, thankless job. We're hoping to get uh, somebody onboarded this week. Um, she's great, very smart, very knowledgeable. She's got great insight on things. Uh, Luke is doing really well with the stuff that he has. Uh, we've got a couple mock drafts that are planned within the USA Today network. Um, we're, we're collaborating with uh, the mothership, we call it, uh, usatoday.com, their their uh, sports staff. Uh, DraftWire is going to be doing some work with them as well. That's uh, always fun. It's always great to get uh, a, a wide variety of insight from 30, 32 other writers that they have, uh, different papers across their entire network. Um, you know, it, pitching in and, and giving us insight into who's going to get drafted where. And it's draft season, Lance. You know, the, the national championship game is what tomorrow. Um, once that ends, it, it's uh, it's pure football. Or if you're into early baseball, which I don't know how you could be, um, it, it's it's uh, it's all football speculation. And I'm all for it. I, I love this time of the year. And listeners, we're going to go ahead and conclude with that again. Happy Easter to all of you. Happy Resurrection Day. And thank you once again for tuning into the new standard. You can always find us on all of the popular podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. And please take a look at YouTube. Do a search for the new standard, either that with Lance Williams or Neil Kulong and give us a subscription. We love doing this, and we're going to keep bringing it to you every Sunday until probably the regular season, and we'll figure out the different schedules somewhat so forth. When we do that, maybe we'll have something special for the draft. Me and Neil will tease it out. But again, thank you for tuning into The New Standard.